You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome once again to the Revision Path Podcast, episode 58. My name is Maurice Cherry. Happy holidays to you if you're listening. I've got a really great interview for you today. But first, you already know, I got to talk about the audience survey. Now, you all came through last week. I have to admit, the survey numbers are the double digits. We got 34 submissions now all together. That's great. But I know that some of you listening still have not taken the survey, and I need your feedback. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash survey. Fill it out. You'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon.com gift card. The survey closes on New Year's Eve, so take some time. Fill it out, please. I know you're probably going to be off work these next few days. It only takes about 10, 15 minutes. It's all I ask. (laughs) This week's episode is sponsored by Paul J. Gray. Uh, Paul works at Evertrue in Boston, and they are looking for a front-end developer. So if you're in the Boston area and you're interested, apply today at Evertrue.com and click on Careers. Uh, tell them Revision Path sent you. Thanks a lot, Paul. I appreciate it. Funding for Revision Path comes from three amazing companies, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. One of the things I love about MailChimp service is their smart scheduling. So instead of trying to like blindly figure out when the best time is to send an email message to your list, MailChimp will analyze your past campaigns and will tell you the best time to send when your list is the most engaged. Set up your free account today and give it a try, MailChimp.com. When you're looking for the best place to register a domain name, you ask the people who know a lot about domains, and that's Hover. Now, I have a new blog that I'm starting at the first of the year, and I use Hover to narrow down the domain I want and set up emails for it. It was really simple. Purchase a domain today and use our promo code NIA, that's N-I-A, and save 10% off your first purchase. Uh, Hover.com, they've got you covered. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. Now, you probably just missed their 12 days of Creative Market bundle that they had on sale, but it's not too late to get in on their Pay It Forward charity bundle that ends at the end of this month. And of course, because it's Monday, they've got free goods for you to download today. So head over to creativemarket.com. I think you'll really enjoy it. Oh, and one more thing. Revision Path is excited to partner with Lesbians Who Tech for the 2015 Lesbians Who Tech Summit in San Francisco. Save 25% off registration with the code LWTREVPATH. That's L-W-T-R-E-V-P-A-T-H. I'll also um, include the code in the show notes, so check that out. Alrighty, let's get on with this week's interview. Now, when I talked with design director Leon Lawrence III about the early days of the Organization of Black Designers and Design Nation, here's what he had to say. It was overwhelming. You showed up there and there were all these different designers of color that you didn't know were out there. Um, you know, you always felt like you were working in a bubble and this was a way for you to all get together and exchange ideas and everything. And it was so fulfilling and so rewarding and, and so successful that before the event was over, everyone just kept looking at each other saying, we've got to do this again. We've got to do this again. This is Revision Path. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Leon Lawrence III. I am the design director for USA Weekend Magazine. I've been the design director for USA Weekend Magazine for 14 years now, and USA Weekend is a magazine that is part of USA Today and the Gannett, Corp, Gannett Company. 
And now USA Weekend has a, a huge circulation. Am I right? It has like 18 to 19 million Yes, it, it does. Circulation. It does have a giant circulation, or as, my, as one of my kids would say, ginormous circulation. It distributed in newspapers across the country, 520-something newspapers. And it's a Sunday publication. Uh, it is a combination of lifestyle and how-to and celebrity. And it's uh, quite exciting to work there. It, it's you know, There's lots of um, – we do a lot of photo shoots with celebrities. We do a lot of conceptual stuff with um, – covers and i'm heavily involved in all of that but yeah usa weekend is a big publication or in, in terms of reach it's a great publication to work for as design director what are some of the tasks that you have to do on let's say a, a day-to-day basis with the magazine my primary task these days is to organize the various parties to make sure the publication comes together i deal with illustrators photographers or the photo editors for USA Today, I make sure the copy is in and I do the layouts and the conceptual work on the cover. So I have a brainstorming meetings every every week to talk about cover design for upcoming issues and what the concept or the idea would be for the cover and then take that idea and translate it into the inside. And so I'm sort of a... I guess you you would say a ring director for for a, a circus or carnival. I'm making sure that all the pieces come together, but I also design the overwhelming majority of the publication. Nice. And how long now have you been doing that? Uh, Fourteen, going on fifteen years. Wow. So you've really seen, I guess, the changes as it relates to publication and newspaper circulation and things like that. Have any of those factors affected the work that you do um, in terms of design? Very, very much so. We do a lot more work that needs to be pushed online. We do a lot more video for covers and and inside stories that we do, making sure that when we do a photo shoot, there's uh, someone's there taking video to make sure that's able to be pushed up online. We also do a lot more web interviews and, and and other things to make sure that the end user, someone who's looking at the website, is able to, to interact with, with the publication, which certainly wasn't the case 14 years ago. I mean, it was you just open the publication, you read it, and you set it on your coffee table and hope that someone else would pick it up and look at it also, or you clipped out you know, articles or coupons and, and left them for your, for your family members. But now mm-hmm. it's become a lot more digital and even becoming even more so. And... It has more of a shelf life, I guess, online. Do you think that USA Weekend magazine will eventually become all digital? That's a good question. The way we are set up to be inserted into newspapers across the our partner newspapers across the country, it's not a real digital friendly publication to completely go online because it's not sold to the end consumer. It is a value-added product that goes in the newspaper. So, mm-hmm. and because we're in local newspapers, it gives us a better way of continuing on in our current, in the current way we're doing things because everyone wants their local news. And, and until local news goes completely online, USC Weekend acts as a, uh, I guess, a national insert into the local newspaper. So some of the celebrities that no, local newspapers won't be able to get they can insert USA Weekend and, and their readers can read about those celebrities. 
some of the national stories we do on, I, I don't know, I guess, I guess we do things on food additives and we do things on how to prepare for hurricanes or what other disasters. A lot of local newspapers don't cover those things and it's a, it's a sort of a value added. So once, mm-hmm. <laughs> if USA Weekend was to go completely digital, the local newspapers would lose that extra, I guess, extra piece of candy in, in, in their bag on Sunday mornings. So the goal is to stay print and add some digital to it so people can go online and, and interact with the publication, but to stay digital, I mean, to stay print-based for the most part. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I grew up in a, in a small southern town, and I know when we would whenever we would get the Sunday paper, there would be some sort of an insert. I forget if it was, I want to say it was USA Today. I think it was, I don't know if USA Weekend has underwent like a brand name change or something. For some reason, I remember it being USA Today or maybe Parade or something like that. But it's along those lines. Like you said, it's a, it's kind of a supplement to it, what exactly. the local news is. It, it's, a, it's a supplemental magazine along the line of, of Parade, along the line of not as glossy as New York Times magazine, but, you know, something that's, that's a value-added piece. I got you. Okay. Let's talk a little bit before your work at, at Gannett and everything like that. What was really sort of your first big break into the industry? Uh, my first big break in the industry, I came into the industry from California. I was living in a, a cabin at Yosemite National Park and working on my portfolio out of school because I found that my portfolio wasn't ready to compete with a lot of the kids coming out of design school at the time. So I, I came to DC looking for a job. I, ex- I actually interviewed at a lot of different ad agencies with what I was looking at at the time, but I looked at a lot of different places across the country coming out of school. I, I, I tell people that I've had over 120 interviews before I got my first job. And wow. I know it's a lot. And I, I've interviewed from everywhere from San Francisco, California, down through the south towards New Orleans, Dallas and New Orleans, and back up the east coast to to Baltimore, looking for my first job. And along the way, I would get feedback from art directors, rework my portfolio, and keep at it. But I lived in Yosemite, California, for about three years and looked for jobs up and down the California coastline and in Central Valley, California, for that time. And every time I get an interview, I would take the feedback I got back from it, and I'd go back to my cabin. I had a drawing table in there. I'd rework my portfolio and go back out and hit it again. And eventually, I left the West Coast and headed to the East Coast because I had family here. And I started interviewing here, and I got a break by meeting um, a gentleman named Terry Wilson, who was an art director for an ad agency. And he looked at my book and said, well, you know, I can't hire you. We don't have work for you here, but let me call a few people. And that's the way it used to work. And I don't know if it still does, but you, know, you meet someone in the industry and if they liked you or they took it, took an interest in your book, they would call other people that they knew in the industry and sort of pass your name along, get you introductions, get you interviews. And that's how I sort of got into the DC market. And I interviewed at one point with this ad agency called Dan, Danforth and Wallace, they were in McLean and was invited to come back and interview again. And I got a job working for an ad agency, Danforth and Wallace. And 
wasn't there for very long before I realized that advertising was probably not my best move career-wise because I wasn't – I was still green. I was still a little green around the, around the gills trying to get my design down and, and typography and all these other things. But working with that ad agency, one of the people that worked there had a husband who worked – had his own design studio, and he was looking for a part-time employee. And so he uh, called me up and asked me if I was interested to come over and show him my portfolio, which I did. And he offered me a job part-time working for his design studio, which is different work than ad agency work. It takes longer to do, and it's usually more thoughtful in terms of how long it, it takes from concept to fruition of what you're doing. Ad agency work is always quick, 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 quick. Get out the door, get out the door. Design studios, you, you got to spend a little more time doing research and, and concepting and, and other things. And so I was able to work with him part-time, which ended up being about 32 hours a week, and eventually he offered me a full-time job. It wasn't long. It was about two or three months. He offered me a full-time job, and I worked with him for a lot of years, 10 years. I became his art director eventually. And then I left him to become art director of Black Entertainment Television, working for Emerge Magazine there. And I did the art direction for Emerge till they uh, closed the doors. And USA Today or USA Weekend called me out of the blue as I was sending back film from uh, photo editors that had, uh, I mean, photographers that had uh, sent work to me. I was sitting at my desk at uh, BET, sending back images and trying to, close up shop and USA Today, USA Weekend called me, asked me if I wanted to come over there and do an interview. So I went over and did an interview and 14 years later, here I am. <laughs> what was your time like working at BET on, with Emerge Magazine? Oh, it was, <laughs> it was crazy. It was wonderful. It was high stress and one of the best jobs I've ever had. BET as a company People always used to say, you know, you don't work for a corporation, you work for BET. They had their own way of doing things. I know in the summer, in the summertime, they would have these giant cookouts outside in the yard. There were lots of hip-hop artists hanging out and, and doing uh, videos and stuff in the sound rooms. So many creative African-Americans in one place, I can't even begin to tell you. And I'm still friends with a lot of them. The editor-in-chief of Emerge Magazine, George Curry, I still uh, talk with him, mostly via Facebook and, and email. But every once in a while, I do see him. And every once in a while, the old BET staff uh, will get together for various events, birthdays or whatever, and just chat and exchange ideas. But working for BET was an experience I wouldn't trade for the world. It, it taught me a lot about... Working at a national publication, you know, I was the art director of, of Emerge for for a while, and working with a very creative uh, editor in chief, a demanding editor in chief, but a very creative and, and forward thinking editor in chief and managing editor. Flo Purnell was my managing editor, and she was also highly creative. Now, was working at Emerge Magazine your first foray into publication design? Uh, no. I did a lot of publication design and redesign for my design studio. That's one of the primary things we did was take magazines that were out on the newsstand, bring them in-house, rework them, and push them back out. 
as uh, redesign new look publications. Um, at one time, I was working on Kiplinger Personal Finance Magazine, doing comps and things to to change the look of it. So mm-hmm. that that was one of the main businesses for our design studio, along with annual reports and, and branding and, and, and other things, was to rework and redesign publications. At it for a short while, we we had brought Emerge Magazine into our design studio and was and we were designing it through the design studio for a short while before it got rebranded and and given back full time in house to BET. Okay. I, one of the people that I've interviewed, this was a while ago, was uh, Steve Jones. And I, I remember him telling me that he had done some work with, I think it was with YSB. Uh-huh. I had subscriptions to both because uh-huh. uh, those were like the only magazines my mom would let me read those. <laughs> Ebony. So I, I have very fond of Jet and YSB. Ebony, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. My grandmother still has like this, um, it's like one of those. It's, it's, it's what you use for fireplaces yes, to have uh, yes, firewood yes. in, but they're like stacked full of old ebony That's magazines. Right. That's right. Like she, she still has that. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm interested about this cabin because it sounds very much like something out of Walden or something like that. <laughs> what were what sort of circumstances kind of led you up to that point? I know at one point, or, or sorry, your degree actually is from the University of Southern Mississippi, correct? Yes. Yes. My degree is from Southern Miss, which is what led me to the cabin. My university had a partnership with a number of intern programs and and summer job programs. And one of them was through Yosemite Park and Curry Company out in California. They the park, the national park would come would, would travel across the country during the school year and recruit students to come out and work in their national parks. And they love coming down to the deep south, to the Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, because by the time you get out there, even if you hated it, you're too far away to go back home. So right. once you get out there, you're sort of there. <laughs> well, I was I was born in California. Um, I was an Air Force brat. I was born in California. And so heading back out to West Coast just really intrigued me. Plus, I knew that eventually I wanted to work in design out in California. So this was a way for me to sort of in my opinion, make some connections. And on the weekends of working in the park, I could go out to San Francisco or to Fresno or Sacramento or to LA and do a little reconnaissance missions on the design and advertising industry. So uh, Yosemite Park and Curry Company came out to my university and recruited. And I don't know how many people they recruited from my university, but or I interviewed with them and they offered me a job and I jumped at the chance. It was my freshman year of college. I mean, freshman, yeah, freshman year of college. So I never spent a, a college summer at home. All of them were spent in California at Yosemite. And uh, eventually, after I graduated from school and was looking for a job and knew I wanted to move to California to uh, work in advertising and design, I took back up a position at Yosemite and full-time and lived in a cabin while I looked for my first design job. I had an old Nissan Pulsar, so I, I all, everything that I owned, including my drawing table, I had broken down and put and crammed into this Pulsar. And it was just uh, enough room for me and my driver's seat. I couldn't even see out the back window. It was just me and my driver's seat and, wow. and all my belongings in this Pulsar driving across country back out west. And I moved into a cabin at Yosemite, and I lived there for about three years, working in the park and perfecting my portfolio before I got my first job, before I left uh, Yosemite and got my first job. So um, I, I have very fond memories of 
of Lenny's Yosemite. I worked for a time at Yosemite in the sign shop there doing print, pull, pulling uh, signs with an old hard type, hot type press uh, uh-huh. for the park service. I pulled signs to, to go up in the various stores and around the park. Uh, so I would make signs. It was sort of a, a pseudo graphic design job, I guess you could say, as close as I was, I was getting at that moment. But uh, I look back fondly on those, those years at Yosemite. It, it really set me up for the way I view the rest of my life, the way I interact with people. Now, you wrote a book that's titled Career Diary of a Publication Design Series. Tell me sort of what was the process behind you writing that book? Where- oh, well, that's, that book came about through a publisher, GCC Books. They were tied into Organization of Black Designers for a while. And so they knew a bunch of different African-American designers or designers of color and they were interested in putting together a, a series of books, sort of like a idiot's guide to for careers. And the owner of that publishing group, Garth, contacted me and asked me if I was interested in writing a publication, writing a, a book on the design industry and what I did for a living. Well, I, I told him I was already writing a publication based on trying to get students into the field of graphic design. And he felt that that could be part of the book, but it was a little too small. The scope was too small for a full publication or a full book. So he asked me if I would take, would write notes and include that in my writing, but to do a 30-day step-by-step walkthrough of what it takes to be a design director at a national publication and In the beginning, in the introduction, I could have a little bit about how I got to where I was, and that would uh, be sort of my little nod to helping students get into the business. But it it was not easy to do, but by doing a 30-day step-by-step, all I really did was wake up every morning, write down the time I started working, and the steps I went through every day, and coming up with ideas and speaking with people, having meetings, and in my job. And it let me know in a lot of ways the steps I take or the amount of time I take to do certain things in my in my job. It also helped me to focus <laughs> more directly on what I needed to do to push projects out the door. I found the, the writing of the book very rewarding. I also was able to use that book as a teaching tool for some of the, the people that I, I mentor. So it worked out well. I don't know if, uh, don't know how well the book is 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 selling. I, I've gotten a couple of small residual checks from it, but the, the whole point wasn't to really get paid for it. It was it was more to um, to do something that would educate. You know, I'm, I'm all about educating. So it was it was more to educate people in getting into the field and what it takes to, from my perspective what it takes to work as a design director for a publication. And I, I guess I look at the steps and sometimes I, I get a little overwhelmed <laughs> by what I go through sometimes to, to get a, a, an issue out the door. But, you know, at weekend we have 52 of them. So it's um, the pace is quite quick. You know, BET was just 12 times a year. So it wasn't yeah. quite as frantic daily, but it was certainly frantic the last two weeks of every month. Mm-hmm. getting emerge out the door. Do you think that you'll write another book? 
Yeah, uh, certainly. I don't know if it would be about design directly. I'm fortunate enough to be married to a writer, so so, uh, and she's written a couple of novels. So we have talked about writing a couple of things geared more towards kids because we have we have a couple of kids. So geared more towards kids and dealing with some of the issues that that kids have and and how they can work through those issues. Now, earlier you mentioned the Organization of Black Designers, and I know through the research I've done that you were the vice president of the Organization of Black Designers for a while. For those that are listening and aren't sure what that is, even though I think the name is pretty obvious, (laughs) can you tell me sort of what the organization is about, what does it do, and what was your time like while you were a part of it? Oh, sure. The Organization of Black Designers was a design organization that brought together uh, the different design disciplines, uh, architecture, interior design, industrial design, graphic design, and multimedia design to have a, I guess you would say, a, a uh, an exchange of ideas. So the, the organization was, was started by uh, David uh, Rice and Shauna Stallworth, and they had this vision of bringing design, African-American designers from the different disciplines together and to have an exchange of ideas and uh, get a sense of who's out there, who, who's out there in the industry and, and working, people of color, and what can we get from feeding off of each other? How can we grow as a group from feeding off of each other? Exchanging ideas and coming up with ways to work together to further our uh, footprint in the design industry. So the Organization of Black Designers was an organization that started in the early 90s. And the funny thing is it it started as a, just as a meeting, as a seminar in Chicago. And David and Shauna put the word out that there was going to be this get-together of like minds in Chicago. And it was sort of like a word of mouth or via email kind of thing. And they had a bunch of different contacts, uh, African-American designers that they'd met over the time. And so they sent out this email and, and we all bought plane tickets and showed up to Chicago for this first ever meeting, not knowing exactly what it was going to be. We knew that there was a bit of an agenda that was sent out. There was going to be some seminars. There was going to be a couple of talks and a keynote speaker. But we really had no idea what this thing was going to be. And I think they, I believe they called it Design Nation, but it was just a just a name that we were going to gather under to exchange ideas. And I think there was about 200 people, 200 African-American or designers, people of color, that got together for this first little thing in Chicago. And it was overwhelming. You showed up there and there were all these different designers of color that you didn't know were out there. You know, you always felt like you were working in a bubble, and this was a way for you to all get together and exchange ideas and everything. And it was so fulfilling and so rewarding and so successful that before the event was over, everyone just kept looking at each other saying, we've got to do this again. We've got to do this again. And someone came up with the idea of, why don't we start chapters? Why don't we do this on a small scale in each of the major cities on a monthly basis or yearly basis of having these, these small chapters of different design disciplines, people of color. And so when we left Chicago, we had uh, come up with an idea to start the organization of black designers as a 
group with about four or five chapters dispersed across the country. And one of the chapters, of course, was in Washington, D.C., where I reside. And we got together and had a meeting and talked via voice, a speakerphone with David Ashana, came up with bylaws and, and started the Organization of Black Designers like that. I mean, David had written up a bunch of uh, things that he wanted to use as a springboard to push our organization in a certain direction. And everyone grabbed that directive and ran with it. And we uh, really took on the idea of helping the black design community and young designers, college students coming out of school, trying to get into the industry. And that, that seems to be one of the main focuses of organizational black designers is to help people that are first coming out of school, get into the design industry. I think we found a way with, with a, because we had come up with this seminar package or, or this this group of seminars called Reality Check in the Washington area, where I would bring uh, a bunch of professionals from all across the, uh, all up and down the Eastern Seaboard, designers, not necessarily all of color, but designers that had a discipline that they were comfortable teaching in. So we, we would have these professionals come into these seminars and hold what we call reality checks with college students. College students would come in and talk to these professionals, ask questions, and, and they would ask everything, anything from how much you can expect to make the first year to what should I dress, how should I dress for my first interview to what is the best way to communicate and get my portfolio seen. They would ask any number of questions to these professionals through these seminars that we had set up. And there were, I guess we probably ended up having about six or seven seminar classes a day. And so you could switch classes and we had breakouts where students could show the portfolios to a professional. So they would sign up for these uh, portfolio viewings. And it was wonderful. It was highly educational, motivating, and inspiring for, for the professionals to even to, to meet with young people, get uh, young ideas and, and see what the industry was, what the new direction of the industry was because college students, they, they, they have their own things to offer. They are on the cutting edge of what is going to, what the design industry is going to turn into. So I find that the, um, the reality checks were a way for, for the professionals to reconnect with what the industry is moving towards. And the Organization of Black Designers fostered all that. I guess they gave us the the freedom to do a lot of creating on our own and to form the organization. And so it was sort of forming and becoming its own little thing as we were moving down the track with the organization. The organization started off in the early 90s and and got to probably its zenith at about 12 or 14 years. And it's died off a little bit now, but we've started recently to have dialogue about more organizational black designers events. And we are having a meeting in a couple of weeks, actually, to uh, talk to Shauna Stallworth about another reality check, if you will, for the, for the college students coming up in Washington, D.C. So the organization Black Designers really gave a lot of the African-American professionals in design a base, a structure to talk to other designers of color and, and get feedback on where they can go in the industry and to talk to each other and exchange ideas and start businesses. 
mm-hmm. start businesses, start uh, new projects together. And it's it's sort of a, a conduit for all of those things. One thing that you had mentioned before about sort of the impetus behind starting the Organization of Black Designers is that you always felt like you were were working in a bubble. You know, when you're working yeah. in the design industry, sometimes you might be the only person of color. You might be the only black person there. There was a symposium, this AIGA symposium in 1991 that was titled, Why is Graphic Design 93% White? It was by uh, Brenda Mitchell Powell. Mm -hmm. And now, almost 25 years later from that, the graphic design industry, at least according to what we see from conferences and panels and mainstream design media like blogs and magazines, podcasts, videocasts, etc., it's still pretty white. Yes, it is. How do you think that we can increase diversity in the design community? I know you you sort of talked about OBD, but it's in a past tense. Yes, yes. AIGA has, well, they are working on diversity now. I uh, belong to the AIGA Washington, D.C. chapter. I have a few friends who are African-American in AIGA, D.C., who are working to increase the the different skin colors in the the organization. But I Mm -hmm. think graphic design itself is one of those industries still that you don't get a whole lot of people of color going into because it's sort of an industry that is, I don't know if it's looked at as being artsy or, or, you know, maybe, maybe parents aren't pushing their kids toward that. They're more pushing their kids towards engineering and, and, places where you can find a more steady job. I'm probably guilty of that myself because I have a child who's about to go to college and she's, you know, she was talking about going into the arts and I said, yeah, you know, that's, that's great. But I know how tough it is to make it in the arts and Mm -hmm. how much hard work it is to get above the fray in the arts. So I, I push her and she also likes science. So I'm, you know, doing everything I can to sort of push her towards science also. And, and, Maybe she can combine the two, but I, I'm thinking of the, the industry now. And there was a time when graphic design was one of where they were talking about getting uh, certification for graphic design, how you know, how it might give it more relevance in the uh, in the outside world. And but with computers and the fact that everyone anyone can start a design studio up by just hanging out their shingle and and start taking on clients, it makes it tough to to, to have it uh, broken down into, okay, you're a professional graphic designer, so we're going to give you all the business. It's just the, the industry doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. If your portfolio is good enough, you will get jobs. Right. But you don't necessarily have to have a college degree to get into graphic design. And, and I find that it's, especially among the African-American community, you know, parents want their kids to be financially stable, financially successful. And, you know, in some cases still kids going to school in the African-American community, this is, you know, the first generation of kids uh, going to college or at at most the second generation. So Mm -hmm. parents are still a little wary of having them go into an industry that is, that can be volatile, that can be tough to break into. It's a, it's, I find design is a who you know kind of industry as much as any industry and maybe more, so. maybe more so. Yes. And you know, that, I mean, I, I got my start by word of mouth and introduction and mm-hmm. I don't know if it's still that way because I've been in the industry for quite some time, but 
it, it's kind of still that way. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's a it's a who you know, and you you talk to parents, uh, grandparents, ask them how many how many graphic designers do they know in the industry? How many how many people are in the arts that they know? Older people who are already in the arts, yeah, they will know some people. But if kids are you know, on the computers, every, no, all kids are very computer savvy these days. They're on the computer. They're writing blogs. They are some in some cases on the Adobe tools, making their own websites and, and video and everything else. But they don't have um, mentors or role models that that are uh, people of color that are helping guide them into the industry. And it's, it's hard to jump into the industry cold if you don't know anyone. And so AIGA is, is just like any other organization is that they, they have the people that are seeking them out. You know, one, one of the things that organization of black designers was doing was trying to teach college students to become hungrier for knowledge and introductions and things not to stand over in the corner if you see a bunch of people talking and you see a a designer of color in the group talking to other designers or other excuse me other professionals don't stand in the corner and and sit there and expect them to notice you for them to walk up and introduce themselves to you but to become not, not to be necessarily overly aggressive but to become inquisitive and ask questions and try to engage them in conversation and that way you can maybe get an introduction, maybe ask for their business card and, and become hungrier about getting into the industry. Because I find that other for students from the Corcoran, from Art Center, from other design schools who are not students of color, you know, some of them are, are, being, are being aggressive. Some of them are doing what they can to get their name out there. They're sending notes, e- emails, and, and getting introductions. They're going to design programs, professionals, and staying after and talking to those professionals and really making their own way into the industry uh, by being bold. And African-American designers need to become, if they're not already, they need to be bolder about getting their introductions and and taking advantage when you see a designer of color, taking advantage of the fact that you have that connection and that they've probably been through those same struggles that you've been in, that you're going through trying to get your first job. And if you can tap into them, get a business card, exchange information with them, and then follow up with that. See if they can introduce you to other people that might help you further your your entry into the business and it will help you and as long as you are willing to do the groundwork do the homework find out who they are find out where designers are meeting and put yourself in those situations good things are going to happen for you but you know AIGA is one of those groups that they they are seeking people they're wanting to grow the organization and they are putting on programs that might interest people of color to do attend but it's a tough industry, and no one's going to hold your hand to make sure that you get the things that you need getting into the industry. You have to, you have to want it yourself. You have to decide that this is what you want to do and, and make your own way. If you find a mentor, and it's, it's you know, I know AIGA has a mentor program right now. Organizational Black Designers had a mentor program. If you find a mentor, that's gold because you can use – their contacts and their knowledge to introduce you to other people and to get into the industry. But it, it's one of those industries, uh, graphic design is one of those industries that it's hard to crack, it's hard to get into, it's hard to get your first job, 
And the more people you talk to, the more outgoing you are, the more inquisitive you are, the more you look around, you look at publications that are based, that are industry-based, and the more people you talk to, the easier it is going to be for you to get into the industry. Uh, it's just one of those things. So I guess to the spoils go to the bold. One thing that you mentioned with uh, with AIJ, aside from their mentorship program, and I guess I think people that are listening might be tired of me mentioning this all the time, <laughs> but AIGA has a diversity and inclusion task force yes. that's fairly new. Yes. Um, I'm a member of that task force. So I do know that they are really trying to diversify not just the member ranks, but also diversify the industry as a whole. And so we're doing a couple of different steps. One of the things that I'm doing with them is doing outreach to HBCUs about starting up student groups oh, there. Yes. Oh, yes. Seeing what we can do to uh, sort of plant the seed and cultivate that, uh, cultivate student groups there just to get students more involved, not only in the organization, but about their longevity in the field. Exactly. This is probably a, a loaded question, <laughs> uh, so bear with me if it is. Uh-huh. Is there a black design community anymore? There, there, there is a black design community. No, I, I can't speak to any other city, but the city I live in, or the city I live around, which is Washington, D.C. I got together with roughly 20 different black designers from different disciplines two weeks ago for a Sunday brunch to exchange ideas and get together and exchange business cards and meet new designers that have come in, new African-American designers to come into Washington. Now that was just a email chain mm-hmm. event. That wasn't a organized event, but that was an email changing chain event. And one of the founding members of organization black designers, Shauna Stallworth came to that event and announced that there was going to be a, a series of events put together through Organization of Black Designers for uh, at HBCUs to get uh, students involved in getting ready and preparing themselves for the, for the design industry. So African-Americans do still get together. Uh, African-American designers still, do still get together in groups. I don't find it to be as organized as it was a few years ago. And I was heavily into organizing the black design community as a vice president of organization of black designers. It was a, a monumental task at times, getting everyone together and, and, and holding different events, especially when you don't have a whole lot of volunteers. Now doing the events and getting the volunteers, always getting people to come to events or work events was always easy when you know people because you're calling in favors. But getting uh, people to step up to the plate and organize the events themselves or getting the attention that you need to get a mass group of people to attend the events was always a task. And so it, it sort of comes from you have to have people hungry to make things happen on both sides. A lot of people show up to things and it's all about what the organization or what the event is going to do for them. So Mm -hmm. they aren't necessarily willing to give to the organization or to the event. It takes people who are willing to, to sometimes give more than they are receiving uh, or at least receiving on the tangible end to make events and make organizations happen. So 
you know, when I was working with Organization Black Desires, I was a vice president for quite a few years. I got a lot out of the organization personally, inspiration-wise and, and introduction-wise. I met a lot of different people, but I gave a lot to the organization. And it, you know, when I was ready to step down and handed it over to the next group of people who were going to become the president and vice president, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people stepped away from the organization because they were kind of burned out by, you know, <laughs> having done all that work early on. But they also stepped away from the organization because the organization was was asking them to, to do more. And yeah. people, you know, they're, they're willing to contribute as long as it doesn't take a whole lot of their time. But the moment you start to ask them to, to, to take time, to take, you know, if it's going to cost them anything, if there's going to take a Saturday or two away from you know, whatever else they were doing, then they feel like you're asking a little too much. And, and you have to be willing to, to give a little bit more when you're starting an organization, especially a, a organization of black designers. Give a little more at the beginning than you are receiving and to, uh, to, sacri- to do a little sacrifice of your time. But once it gets going, if you get people involved in it, you're growing the membership then it becomes an organization that can kind of operate on its own. But I, I find that you always have a group of four or five people who are doing a lot of the work. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the case with the, the D.C. chapter of the Organization of Black Designers. There was a group of four or five people doing a lot of the work. And, and then getting other people to help was sort of like pulling teeth. And, and they, w- they would help, they show up to the events and things, but the week-to-week, month-to-month running of the organization takes bodies, too, and takes time. And, and you have to have those people that are willing to, to sacrifice their time to do that. And so organizations are only as strong as people that are willing to, to sacrifice their time. But I guess that's yeah. the same with any organization. It's that the amount of mass, the amount of people that you get in to get into the organization allows you to do – for each individual person to do less work and still get all of the work done. The Organization of Black Designers, D.C. chapter, just never grew to that mass amount of people. I mean, we had 20 or 30 members at at one point, but it was never that mass amount of people that even when someone was sick or someone had stepped away to do a, a freelance project or something, that the organization would continue running smoothly. And I think that was the problem. With OBD. There wasn't that, that critical mass. Exactly, the critical mass. And, and AIGA has the critical mass in terms of bodies. They also have the reputation. Organization Black Designers was building that reputation. They just never got there. But AIGA has that the mass. Their problem is trying to make they're, – they're trying to have AIJ look like the design community in general. And, and there are a lot of African-Americans that are in the design community that aren't members of AIGA and, and – you know, designers get wrapped up in their own little worlds and, and, and get wrapped up in the things that they're doing to make money or to make their companies or their businesses successful. And they don't mm-hmm. always take the time to show up to events or to participate in different AIGA chapter events. You have to have a willingness to do that. The chapters, the, Africa, the HBCU uh, AIGA chapters, I know we have one at Bowie State in Washington, D.C. area. And they're mm-hmm. putting together, trying to get one together at Howard University right now. But we also have to get, you know, get the students interested in being involved in these chapters. I remember holding a bit at Howard University a few years ago, 
And when we had the postmortem after the event, we had talked to some students about what would it take to get more students involved in a in coming to these these events, which were free, or be involved in an uh, an organization for designers there. And what would it take for them to to show up at events and show up to these organizational meetings and things? And the students, I couldn't believe it. A student, quite one of the students, quite frankly, told me, "Well, if you have a band, or if you have a party, or something like that." the students will show up. And I'm thinking, you are getting free advice <laughs> and you're meeting professionals in your industry. Where do you want to be eventually? You know, you're, uh-huh. you're, this is all being given to you. All you have to do is turn around and talk to someone. It's all being offered to you. All you have to do is roll out of bed on a Saturday morning by 10 o'clock and walk a couple of blocks and you, have, uh, you will have all this opportunity to meet people in the industry that might help you further your career. And you're telling me that if we had a band, a hip-hop group, or a party of some sort, you might be bothered to show up and help your career. But if we don't have those things, then eh, you'll think about it. Well, you know, as an old art director from BET that I worked with told me once, you can't make them, you can't make students want to want it. They have to be able to bring something to the table themselves. They have to be able to decide that this is where they want to be, this is what they need to be able to make it in the industry, and to take the initiative to to show some initiative. You can't make them want it. You can't make them want to be involved in something for their career. And certainly you can't force them. I mean, unless it's for a grade, you can't force them to do it. So it's a matter of desire as well as having the opportunities presented to you. So you have you have to have the desire to want to get into the industry and be successful in the industry for for some of these things to happen. Well, I think it's like you said, you know, uh, they have to become hungry. Yes, exactly. The, that the hunger has to be there to, to sort of fuel you and, and propel you. Some of the things that you're mentioning are, are things that <laughs> I've been experiencing. When I talk to HBCUs about getting student groups started, the first thing is usually the cost, mm-hmm. because to start the student groups, you have to have 10 students, and each of them have to have, I think it's $50 a year memberships, which is the lowest level. Mm-hmm. So for the students, and I mean, I'm not that far removed from being a student, but the students are, are the feedback I'm getting is that $50 is too much. Uh-huh. And I all, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur as well. I, I you know, and when, when I hear that coming back from clients, what it says to me is that what I haven't done is communicated my value. Yes. And one problem that I think that AIGA has, and and I'm not saying this is an endemic problem for the whole organization, but particularly as it relates to black designers and to HBCUs, is communicating the value of being an AIGA member in order to have that buy-in for them to say, okay, I want to be a member, I want to do X, Y, Z. Like I've interviewed a lot of people. Some love AIGA some are very bullish on AIGA. I just recently joined AIGA because when I wanted to join way back in like the early 2000s, I was told that I shouldn't join because I don't I'm not an art major. I don't I don't go to an art school and that's what AIGA is about. Uh-huh. Even though I was interested in design, that's sort of the feeling that I always got and that's what I was always told from other members. <laughs> So AIGA well, has changed this too. <laughs> oh no, no, it's yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if they, that's a they're, they're realizing or not, that, yeah. that that no, 
youth is is the driving is the uh the engine that they need to further the organization so they've changed their tune a little bit <laughs> right now you're also a member of the national association of black journalists and, and like i said before i speak with a lot of designers some are aig members some of them aren't but they are looking for that kind of professional organization of sorts of black designers and i mean of course there is the organization of black designers they're looking for something to join where they feel like they would get that benefit from from networking and and fellowship yeah. and things of that nature do designers kind of have a place within nabj yeah i mean you, you mostly find nabj there is a design community but it's it's a very small design community and NABJ is primarily a journalism, a journalist organization, but the events and the conferences that I've attended, I found that I've gotten things out of them because there's always design editors and other people in in design in the design industry that come to the events for you to network with. A lot of the seminars are journalistic seminars. There are some design and layout seminars, and you get, can get some things out of them. Out of, out of the uh, the organization's conferences, but I find that m- the majority of the time it's the uh, journalists that will get the most out of NABGA group seminars and, and, and conferences. I am a member of NABGA because I belong to a news media company, mm-hmm. and it it's not necessarily required, but to know other people that are in the industry is important. For networking and other and other reasons, so I find it behooves me to to continue being a member and to network with uh, journalists because I'm designing pages. You know, I have to have that rapport with them, and I have to know the industry and, and to get my job done. Right. I wouldn't say that NABJ is a must for a young African American designer if you're if unless you're designing unless you're in the, in the meet designing for newspapers there's also the society of newspaper design which is another sort of like an AIGA for for newspaper designers that is okay. more they, that talks more to the graphic design or the design industry now that is obviously not an African American I mean they have the same problems that, that AIGA has only probably more so but I find that if you're a young designer and you're looking to make inroads into the industry, the more people you talk to in the different organizations, the better. You don't have to join the organizations to go to some of the meetings. You know, they're going to try to get you to join once you get to those meetings. But you don't have to join the organization just to show up to a meeting or two and to do a little networking and decide whether it's worthwhile to to join the organization. I find the AIGA... You know, I, I've been in AIG for a long time, and you know, I'm one of those people that knows a lot of the old guard in our local AIGA. So it's not. I mean, I, I have a good time. I mean, it's it's almost like you know, going and hanging out with a bunch of old friends, you know, that you haven't seen in a while. So it's it's not the intimidating cocktail party that that young designers and designers that are still in school might uh, experience for me. But I find that. Showing up to, to the events for AIGA or to the conference for, NI, for NABJ or some of the other organizations, it helps young people to talk to um, people who've made it in the industry because generally the people who are talking are people 
people who are giving the speeches and people who are presenting their, their work are people that have made it. And they have a lot of good pointers and they're always willing to stay after their talks to, to give ideas, to exchange business cards or information with young people. So I find that even if you're not a member, it's helpful to attend those things. Speaking to your, you know, it's $50 a year to join uh, an organization or to start an organization on your campus. You know, what, what is the value of your profession? What is the value of your career? You know, $50 a year is a lot of money. You know, a lot of kids in college get money from their parents. I'm sure they'd rather give you $50 to join an organization than $50 to do some of the other things you might do with your $50. You know, I mean, $50 is a video game. That's right. That's days. right. So that's, it, that's NBA 2K15 that's, right that's there. That's right. You're exactly right. So, you know, when, when we were holding events for Organization of Black Designers, those events were always free. So there is really no excuse for not showing up to them other than you just had something else that you'd rather do. And mm-hmm. so my, my question to you, I ask you again, is what is the value of your of your discipline? What is the value of getting a job in your industry? Because as we've talked about a number of times on this conversation, getting into the design industry is hard. It is a very difficult industry to crack. And the more people you know, the more introductions you can get from people that you've met, the more business cards and, and hands you shake, the easier it will be to break into the industry. That's just the nature of it. it I, I'm sorry to say that it's, you know, you can have the best portfolio in the world. If you don't make those introductions, you're not going to get into the industry. So, you know, paying the money, the little bit of money that it costs to do your networking, what is the cost of networking? Now, what is the cost of getting your first full-time job? What is the cost of you getting your next job? So it, it, it has a value. You just have to figure out what it means to you. Now, you mentioned that AIJ has a, a mentor program. Who was your mentor? Who helped you sort of rise up through the ranks to where you are now? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I have very fond memories of my mentor. As a matter of fact, I talk to him usually you know, every couple of weeks or so. Rodney C. Williams. Rodney C. Williams was my mentor, is my mentor. Rodney C. Williams is an AIGA fellow, Washington, D.C. chapter. He was awarded his fellow, his fellowship, I guess, two or three years ago now. And I was one of the people that presented his fellow to him. So I got to do this whole little introduction with And I wrote, I designed this children's book that I called The Cat and the Bowtie, because Rodney C. Williams always wore bow ties, and read this children's book that I had written and designed and presented to him at the AIGA Fellow Awards. Rodney was an art director for uh, Playboy, <laughs> believe it or not, back in the day, and Science 80 magazine. So he came to the industry through the magazine door. He was introduced to the industry from his cousin, who was also in the magazine industry. So Rodney brought me in, and it was just a, it was happened, it was just a lucky introduction and it was word of mouth. I got introduced to someone by just knocking on doors. Once I came to Washington, D.C., it's gentleman Terry Wilson, who was an ad agency creative director. I knocked on his door, didn't know he was African-American, knocked on his door mm-hmm. in his uh, company. I think it was Stacky Sanderson and White. It was ad agency in, in D.C. And the Asworth creative director, this guy, I looked at my notes and it said Terry Wilson. Terry Wilson walks in, African-American creative director. 
first time I had ever met an African-American in the design industry. And I was taken aback. And he might have been taken aback for all he knows, because <laughs> he probably didn't see a whole lot of African-American students or or recently uh, graduated students looking for work in this area. But uh, I said, wow. And I was so impressed that, you know, here's this, this creative director, African-American, person of color, that I could just pick their brain. And he gave me a lot of time on that interview, just picking his brain and trying to figure out how I can crack in the industry. Of course, he looked at my portfolio, gave me some good pointers on how to rework my portfolio, which is, I found the most helpful of all of the things that you can do as a young designer is, is to, even if it's just an informational interview, to talk to art directors, creative directors, and have them give you feedback on your work. And so Terry gave me feedback on my work. And at the end of it, I mean, we had a nice conversation and I was trying to pick his brain and ask the questions that I thought I needed to know. And at the very end of it, he gave me some other people to call. And that is, that is gold. That is almost more important than anything else in the, in the, the conversation was getting those contacts, getting the next person that you can talk to. Eventually, at the end of one of those conversations, it's going to lead to a job. Eventually. Mm-hmm. I went through 120 of them before it led me to a job. But, <laughs> but Terry introduced me to someone at another ad agency who introduced me to someone at another ad agency. And eventually, I got a job working for an ad agency through word of mouth. That ad agency job didn't didn't last very long. I wasn't a great designer for, for advertising, but it led me to an introduction to Rodney Williams, who had a design studio. And I went and talked to him, and he offered me a part-time job. And with that part-time job came my mentorship, and I was very fortunate. I remember one of the first layouts I, I was doing, I was up in his, uh, his studio, we on this, and this is back before computers really got big. So I'm on this drawing table, inking out some stuff, and he's giving me pointers. You know, I mean, there's nothing better than than working at a place and having someone take an interest and in, and in making sure that you grow in the industry. And he's giving mm-hmm. me pointers on how to do this and how to do that, how to do production, how to mock up color, how to pick the right photograph for for a, a the cover of a magazine or for a brochure, how to lay out a brochure correctly, how to do thumbnail sketches for an entire book. I mean, he, he's, he was like a, a cornucopia of, of information, and, and I was just soaking it all in. He would pull things, you know, he would walk around the, industry, the studio as he's talking to me about some project we're working on, and he would find uh, these books, 30, 40 years old, you no know, dusty, moldy, and he goes, here, look at this book. And I would glance to it. He goes, here, take this book home for the evening and bring it back tomorrow. And I would go take the book home and I'd pour through it. You know, and he would ask me these leading questions, these leading questions about what I was thinking about a project or how I could uh, push the project further, how I could push the envelope and come up with concepts that I never even thought I could come up with. So he was this really good, this vessel of knowledge for the industry. I mean, he had been in the industry 15, 20 years maybe before I met him, uh, I guess probably 15 years or so before I met him, and he was more than willing to pour that knowledge into me. And I can't even imagine having a better mentor than that. And it changed the way I designed. It changed my life. It changed the way I I started copying everything he did. Now, he would go to these meetings and talk. I mean, and he wouldn't, I mean, it weren't rinky-dinky meetings. I mean, some of them were, 
meeting the communication director for Howard Hughes Medical Institute or the director of publications or exhibits for the Smithsonian. And he would bring me along to these meetings, so I would dress like him. I, I had shaved off my facial hair, so I so I had a face like him. And I had I no, I didn't get bow ties because you wore a lot of bow ties. I didn't wear a bow tie, but but I, I went and got some suits so I could so I could you know kind of be I would be his shadow, and, mm-hmm. and I would I would all the mannerisms that he had I would follow them and I would I would uh, follow up with leading questions the way he would, and he molded me into the designer I am today, and the the person I am today just by me mimicking and watching and paying close attention to how he went about his business because he was, he was a professional. He's a very, he was a very successful professional. I mean, he had won awards in the art directors club in New York and, and AIGA and, and communication arts and, and print magazine. And, and he had all these different things that he had to offer. And I just followed in his footsteps. It was very, he, he made it very easy to, to soak up knowledge. I was learning it was sort of like my my second education. Now I went to college for four years, got enough knowledge to know that I didn't have enough knowledge to get into the industry. And through my my interviews with different art directors and changing my portfolio and stuff, I got enough knowledge to get through the door. Rodney Williams took what I had, that raw material, that that, that knowledge I had to get into the door and made me a successful designer. Wow. What's some of the most useful career advice that he's given you? Well, I would say the most useful career advice he gave me was to not be afraid to ask questions, to not be afraid to follow up uh, conversations. And the most important one, he always said this, listen. When someone is talking to you, listen to what they say. Think about what they say, because even with uh, clients, when you when you meet a client for the first time, you're trying to figure out what they need, what they want, what their vision is for what they feel their company is about, what their what the thing that they're promoting is about. If you listen very intently on what they say, they give you the answer to your design problem. The words that they say over and over again, the mannerisms or the, the way their face lights up when they bring up a certain aspect of what their business is about, or what the organization is about, or what the event is that they're promoting. When they say those things over and over again, or when they 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 pull a side note on something and they start talking about this one little particular thing about the thing that they're trying to sell or promote, those are clues to you on how to approach the project. So listening, following up with, with leading questions. Reading. No, Rodney was always a big one to stress reading a lot. Read everything you see that deals with design or deals with whatever project that you're working on. So he had tons of books. I mean, his, his, his whole studio was filled with books. Some of them were probably things like how to lay out Ruby Lift and stuff like that. And there's stuff that the industry doesn't use anymore or repeatograph manuals. But a lot of them were history of design publications. No, the history of pushpin you know, design or pentagram or a lot of art books, a lot of books on uh, Wilmar Baird or all these different artists. And and then, of course, books on architecture and industrial design. You know, he's one of those guys who, who believed in the, the Bauhaus school of design. If you can design a page, you can design a shoe, you can design a chair, you can design a house. You know, so every, everything was sort of interconnected with him. And my whole thing that I got from him was listening, ask leading questions, and be inquisitive. Look through the books. Look through, gain all your information that you need to do a project 
by by going the extra mile and doing your homework. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? <laughs> in some ways, I am way further than I ever imagined I would be because I didn't think I was going to um, end up as an art director for a national publication. You know, my, my goal coming out of college was to get a job as a graphic designer somewhere. No, no. First it was advertising designer. No, after, after I decided that that's probably not the place for me, it became graphic designer, but to get a job in design somewhere. Once I got that job in design, my next goal that I set for myself before I got the first job in design was I wanted to be an art director by a certain age. I wanted to be an art director for a design studio that did national work at a certain age. And Mm -hmm. it took me, you know, three or four years to do that. Once I did that, then it was, I want to be an art director for a national publication. And so I always had this, this goal and the national publication becoming an art director for national publication, I have to admit kind of fell in my lap because I was looking to move to another position somewhere to become a, an art director somewhere else because I had been at my studio for and 10 wonderful years and was taught so much, but I knew it was time for me to grow. But, you know, we had a, at Rodney Williams Studio, RCW Communication Design, one of our clients was Black Entertainment Television. I went to Black Entertainment Television to have a meeting on an annual report. You no, know, Rodney had a meeting somewhere else, and he asked me to cover this meeting. So, you know, I put on my, my, my Rodney suit without the bow tie and, and got, <laughs> gathered all my things so I could act and be just like Rodney and jumped in my car and drove over to BET to present this annual report concept and, you know, talk to, I I had already met them before. I had already met some of the people at uh, BET before because, you know, it's a black entertainment and one of the places that a lot of African-American designers wanted to work or a lot of African-American design studios wanted to do work for. And so I had been, I've met them a number of times. The people there, some of them had become acquaintances of mine. But I went to this meeting just pitching our ideas, pitching, showing some of the comps and the designs that I did for their annual report and pitching them an idea. And, you know, somewhere along the line, in the middle of that presentation, the editor-in-chief of Emerge Magazine came walking into the room and during a lull said he needed to talk to me after the meeting. And so I finished up, you know, I had no idea what he wanted to talk about. So I, I finished up my meeting. I finished presenting my work and, and shaking everyone's hands, stopped by his office on my way back out to my car, and he offered me a job at BET. <laughs> and wow. it, was, it was like it was just that simple. It was, it was no showing my portfolio. It was no – I mean, we had done work for BET already. We had redesigned their publication, the, the Emerge magazine, a few years before. Well, they had changed the look since then, but we had done that before. So I had already had this rapport with them. And I had done brochures for BET before. I had done newsletters. I mean, not newsletters, but um, and report concepts for BET before. So I had already had this rapport with them, but I didn't know them, you know, well enough to to just walk in there, hold a meeting, walk in there, and say hi, how's it going? But he he said, I've worked with you for a while. I know how you go about your business, and I'm offering you this job. You know, think about it. 
call me and let me know if you want it. <laughs> so I walk out of this meeting where I'm presenting an annual report, which, by the way, we didn't get the project, but presenting <laughs> this annual report. And I walk out of there with a job offer in my hand and you know, I'm getting in my car and I'm, I'm shaking. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what do I do? And then, so I call my wife and I'm like, you won't believe I just got offered a job at Black Entertainment Television. And she goes, you're kidding. I'm like, no, it's just out of the blue. And no, I, I thought about it. I thought about it long because I had worked at my design studio for a long time. And and Rodney Williams was my mentor. I love him like a brother. And I just couldn't imagine leaving him because we have been through, we have fought and we have fought tooth and nail. No, so long ago. We had two fires in our design studio, two fires, two wow. different years, and we had lost everything uh, at one point. We had we were working out of this one room of wood paneled, no windowed office in this industrial building for a while to get back on our feet. And I'd been through all of this with this man who I would walk through fire for. And he had taught me everything I needed to know or to that point about design. And I got offered a job. That was a really good position, and I was torn about whether I should take it or not. And it, it took a couple of conversations with with my sister, actually. And you know, after she you know led me through everything, she says, you know, you need to continue to grow as a designer. You know, I had no idea that I was going to get that opportunity, but I was offered it. And after talking with my sister and, of course, my wife, I took it. I, I took it and. Probably one of the best decisions I made working for Rodney was certainly the best decision I made, but working for BET was another good decision. And the job didn't last forever, but it was highly creative. It got me to become an art director on a national scale. And I got to make a lot of contacts, meet a lot of people. And it led to the job I have now because the job I have now was offered to me almost the exact same way the job at BET was offered to me. Because, <laughs> you know, BET had decided to sell our publication to Vanguard Media, and Vanguard Media is the case these days. It didn't seem, it seemed kind of abnormal at the time, but, you know, a lot of downsizing and reorganization and things. It was when it was the first time I had ever been laid off from a job, but, mm-hmm. B, but uh, Vanguard Media bought our, all the publications for Black Entertainment Television and decided which publications were viable enough, financially stable enough to keep, and which ones weren't. And BET was one of the ones they decided wasn't financially stable enough to keep. And so they unceremoniously let the whole staff of of Emerge Magazine, I said BET, but I meant Emerge Magazine, they let the whole staff of Emerge Magazine, including the editor-in-chief and his top deputies, including myself, they let us all go. And I was in my office at Emerge, <laughs> sending back film to photographers and, and trying to figure out what my next step was. And USA Weekend Magazine and USA Today called me out of the blue and mm-hmm. asked me if I wanted to come in there for a job interview. They had read in the paper that Emerge Magazine and Black Entertainment Television was getting rid of all the newspapers and they were laying off a bunch of people and USA Weekend Magazine and USA Today needed an art director and wanted to know if I was interested in coming over there to talk to them. And just like that. Just like that. It was just it just fell out of the sky. And I went over to talk to them and everything seemed to be uh 
it was a lot. I mean, it was 22 million circulation. I mean, I, mean, I, I couldn't fathom the size of the publication. Now, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't speaking directly to the black community, which is what Emerge did. And, mm-hmm. and I, I really like the idea of that news publication speaking directly to the black community. Now, you know, USA Weekend was not that. It was a lot more celebrity driven. Did a lot more photo shoots with celebrities. And I really, I mean, I just never thought I would be at a point when I started off, you know, doing my comps and design in my cabin in, in Yosemite. I never thought I would end up uh, art directing photo shoots with, with Sean Puffy Combs and, and President George Bush. I just, just didn't think, <laughs> you know, that I would go that direction. And it's been a good ride. Uh, it's been a nice ride, um, very educational, and I've, I've learned a lot. So, you know, a roundabout, long-winded way of answering your question <laughs> about you know, my goals and stuff, you know, I ended up in a place that I couldn't have imagined that I would end up. I had goals. I knew I wanted to be an art director. I knew I wanted to be nationally known at a certain point. I wanted my work. More important than being nationally known, I wanted my work to be respected. I, you know, you know, they have you know, AIGA and Art Directors Club and Print Magazine and Communication Arts Publication and uh, Graphies, which I've never gotten in, by the way. But Graphies, those are publications I've, I've looked at my entire design career and, and those award shows. And I wanted to be a part of them. I wanted to be recognized for my work at some point, very naively so, thinking, you know, if I got into these shows, then that I will have arrived. And that's not the way it really works. But in a 20-something-year-old's mind, being able to become, you know, to see your name in print magazine or in CA or an Art Directors Club of New York or Art Directors Club of Metropolitan Washington or some other publication and see your work there and your name there and everything else was like the thrill of all thrills. And being able to do that was, was certainly a goal of mine being the art director or, or design director of a national publication that has a 22 million circulation and talks to and interviews and photo shoots people, you know, celebrities and, and all these other movers and shakers was even beyond my wildest scope. I, I just, you know, I'm there, but I never planned on being there. So, you know, I, I guess, you no know, luck favors the bold. So what can I say? Ask questions, you know, ask questions of your art director, you know, read a lot of books and listen and don't be afraid to ask a lot of uh, leading questions. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in the next five years or so? Next five years? Well, I'm moving more towards digital, more towards web design. I am trying to find my place and the magazine's place in the multimedia digital world. You know, devices, you know, phones and, and iPads and everything else are where the design industry has moved into. You, I mean, if you're coming out of school, you, you need to be able to design for the web, design for a digital. And USA Today is moving more in that direction. We are designing things that can be pushed on the platforms, interactive animation and, and illustration and, and interactive publications. That's some of the direction that we are going. I'm still doing print, you know, hard print for USA Weekend, but I'm also doing uh, freelance web design and branding and things for for myself and for clients I have on the side. And I am pushing my, uh, I'm pushing Gannett 
or USA Weekend to do more web design stuff. I've done some web for them. No, look the look of the USA Weekend's website, but it is changing and evolving. So I know I need to go more into uh, the digital realm and to move away from so much print. And that's the direction I am heading in now is moving away from so much print. Will it lead to me finding some other, the next step in my design evolution, you know, outside of Gannett? Well, I'd like to stay within Gannett and do that same thing. If it leads to somewhere outside of Gannett in five years, I know I'm open to that. I seem to be very fortunate in how I've landed. You know, I had one um, one art director a few years ago when um, I got my promotion at, I guess it was promotion. I started working on a different publication at USA Today. It was called Open Air. It was an outside, it was, it was like a healthy lifestyles publication. But he, he called me out of the blue once he found out that I was doing this new publication. He goes, dude, you have a, a golden exacto knife parachute. You know, everywhere, everything you touch, <laughs> everything, everything you do, there's always some better step for you down the road and it all just falls in your lap. It just it always just works out for you. I've never known someone who is so lucky in all of my design career. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I, I have been very fortunate. I've been very blessed. And I know that the next step I take will be equally as rewarding. Right now, I am, you know, fully focused on USA Weekend because USA Weekend is evolving and we're doing a couple of things, some things I can't talk to you about, but we're doing a couple of things now that will evolve us to the next level, you know, along with doing a lot of print work. But I need to continue to grow because, you know, you know I, I've got the young guns. They're right on my tail. You know, they're <laughs> flying. And, and, and certainly, I pushed a couple of designers out of the nest at USA Weekend at, at um at USA Today, you know, young African, one African-American designer. I pushed out of the nest and I said, you know, you've learned enough for me and it's time for you to fly. And she got a job at uh, AARP, the magazine, after leaving me. And, and I gave her a great recommendation and helped her to, you know, get into that position. So I'm, I'm not about keeping young people stagnant. Now, I'm, I'm all about paying it forward. You know, I was taught and I was mentored by a wonderful art director, and I try to do the same to the people that I mentor. There's just so much information that you share, and I know we've we've talked for a while here, but just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find you online? Oh, well, I have a website. You can see my portfolio work at leonlawrence3 at wix.com. So it's L-E-O-N-L-E-W-R-E-N-C-E at wix.com. I also can be found in the AIGA DC chapter blog um, on the connectivity link. And there's a interview and, and a short link about my work and my, my view of the world, I guess, on the AIGA DC site. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Man. Yes. All right. Wow. Leon Lawrence, man, you've shared so much information. I really hope that people listen and take all this in. This is just it's gold, really. All, a lot of what you've mentioned, just about tips for, for designers coming into the field and what we can do to sort of give back to the community and things like that is just, it's, it's amazing. Thank you so much for taking time out to speak to me. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, no problem.
And that's it for this week's show. Big thanks to Leon Lawrence III for an amazing conversation. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Leon's work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Don't forget about our audience survey, revisionpath.com forward slash survey. Fill it out and you'll be entered for a chance to win a $100 Amazon.com gift card. The survey closes on New Year's Eve, so go ahead and take it today. Get it out of the way. Big thanks to Paul J. Gray for sponsoring this week's episode. And thanks again to our always amazing sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. They have great templates that work with any email client and their customer service is top notch. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code NIA, that's N-I-A. Get that domain you want now before someone else does. Lastly, there's Creative Market, a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators around the globe. Make sure to check out that Pay It Forward bundle I mentioned earlier, as well as those free goods that come out every Monday, creativemarket.com. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, They See Me Growing, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you're subscribed to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps get the show out. Let's just get new listeners. I'll even read your review, like I said, right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.